Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he'll do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may remember this. There is none like you. No one else can change my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. Yes, I am a Michael W. Smith fan. (laughs) Mildly and moderately embarrassed to tell you that, but yes, I am a Michael W. Smith fan. I have been thinking about that song, there is none like you, no one else can change my heart like you do. And I could search for eternity everywhere and I could find nothing, I could find nothing that could change me, um, that has value like you have value. It's not just a sentimental song, it's a profound biblical truth, that who Jesus Christ is, that in fact who God is, is the greatest thing. I would even say to be Christian is to have that understanding and that commitment. I believe Jesus is the greatest thing to happen to me, to happen to us, that without Jesus we wouldn't even be here. Without Jesus, there would be no purpose to be here. And I don't just mean church. I mean so much more than that. Like that's who Jesus is. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher. And sometimes it's hard to say that or it's hard to believe that. Because there's a lot of difficult things that happen in life. And there's a lot of questions that still remain unanswered. But there's still no one like him. No one can change me. No one can satisfy me, even though at times I may be tempted to accept less. And not only that, but I want to give, uh, put a statement on the screen, and oh, there it is, there's the statement, and I want us to think about this idea here. Our best ideas, our deepest love and compassion, our most logical conclusions, and even our greatest sacrifices, all of them, still have to surrender to the sovereign grace of God. Us at our best, and and we can be great. I think it's because we were made in the image of God, but humanity has had some pretty amazing ideas and some pretty amazing advancements. I know there is a dark side But there's an amazing side to who we are and to what we are about. And when we love and when we love well, we really can love well. And profound sacrifices. And and truly, there have been some great minds that have just thought so well. And yet, 
But what the Bible seems to say in Jesus here in John 14 seems to point out is there is still just something else that, that holds all of this together. It's not us at our best, but it's actually him. And if you can hear it this morning, there's an invitation to join him in this, in prayer. Join me in what God is doing in his works. Our text this morning is like three verses. So sometimes we can have like long verses, right? Like an entire section. Ryan last week said, wow, I think I have five sermons in my sermon. I said, you always have five sermons in your sermon. But anyway, that's Ryan. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I absolutely love is the fact that sometimes it's just good for us to go, yeah, no, 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 we just need three verses or one verse. It's, there's just a lot there, and there is. There's a lot here to wrestle with. Jesus is going to make some rather bold statements. When I moved here, I'd probably been here for a couple of years, and a friend of mine, a close friend of mine said, listen, my mom and her husband have a Bible study in the area, and would you like to come with me? And I, I don't know if it's just that I just love Bible studies. People are like, hey, you want to come to a Bible study? I guess maybe because I'm a preacher, I don't know. But yeah, I'm, I'd love to go to a Bible study. What else, what else do preachers do besides go to Bible studies? And so I said, let's go to this Bible study. So we went to the Bible study, and we sat down. And, and, and what he wanted me to listen to, what he wanted me to hear, was this conversation that they were having, which was well thought out, and I think it was well-intended, it was about God and about how God was interacting with people. And it was deeply, um, I think it was deeply felt. So they weren't just talking theoretically. They were talking in a very deep and profound way. I knew that the reason why I was invited to this study was to hear something and to get my perspective on it. But it, it kind of went like this. That God is good. And like a father is, is good, God is, is good. And God loves and cares for his people. And he is all-powerful. He can do whatever the Lord chooses. And therefore, and that's how you know that there's a conclusion that's been made by these statements previously. God is good. He is really good. He is powerful. He's, he's got this. He's in control of this. Therefore, that when bad things happen in our lives, things that we can't explain, things that we don't want, and that no one in their right mind would ever want. Something has to be broken. And their conclusion was that when cancer, death, divorce, when, when these things happen, these, these disruptive, terrible things happen, it, it must be because of sin. Not generically sin, but no, deeply personal sin. And God is now using this, much like a father would, to then discipline us. So therefore, because you don't just have one therefore, you have lots of therefores. Therefore, if you want to avoid problems and difficulties, then you need to live a certain way. And I sat there, and I know you won't believe me, but I have a witness. I sat there for about an hour, I think, in this Bible study as they were looking at Bible verses and having conversations and thinking and thereforeing, I sat there and I didn't say a word. <laughs> How many of you believe me? Okay, well, I'm serious, I didn't. And not that I didn't have thoughts, 
But I, I think for a number of different reasons, I just, I, I thought maybe it's not the place. I think they knew who I was. I knew who they were. I, I just thought, no, it's, it'd be good for me to just listen. And I'm glad I did. Because all of their conversation was well-intended. And just sitting there for a li- listening for an hour to people genuinely connect dots. And I had to just stop there and just go, oh, that actually does make sense. I think a lot of us kind of think like that, right? Why are all these terrible things happening in the world? Why, if I ask Jesus to do this, does he not do it? What am I missing, right? Have you thought that? And so I just sat there. No real answers. And if I thought like they did, the therefores actually made some pretty serious sense. And I guess um, for that reason, it was just good for me to, to humbly just think and reflect. Snack time. Okay, I love snack time. That's my favorite part of Bible study. So we have snack time. And so we're in the kitchen and I'm having a conversation with this young man and this young man is, is talking to me, and he wants to continue the conversation. And, and he's, again, walking through the steps. If God is a father, and God loves us, and he cares for us, and he's in control of all of these things, then why would he ever allow this, unless it was because of sin in our lives, and unless, and I'm following all the dots, and I'm going, no, I hear what you're saying. No, I get what you're saying. No, that actually seems to make sense. It really does seem to make sense. Do you see these big ideas? Do you, do you see the logic? And then I said to him, I just have one question. How do you explain the cross? Like, what do you do with that? And hear me, I wasn't going to go, yeah, you know, hold my Kool-Aid, I'm out, right? I'm not doing that. I'm asking a serious question. Then how do you explain the cross? What kind of father would send his son for that? What kind of father would allow his son to do that? What did Jesus do wrong to deserve that? And he sat there, and I, I, didn't, I didn't need an answer. I was, I was thinking through the, um, the complexity of everything they were wrestling with, the sincerity that they were wrestling with it. I get it. I've had a lot of pain in my life. I've had a lot of prayers, and, and we use the phrase, that have gone unanswered. I don't know if that's true. Jesus doesn't seem to give me an unanswered option in John 14. So what's happening? What's going on? And that's when I realized I need to remember that my best ideas and my deepest love and my greatest compassion, that my logic when it is just perfect, my sacrifice when it is at the very end must still surrender to God's sovereign grace. That there is something that I, I don't understand. Now, by the way, that fits really well with John 14. Jesus has now been spending a, a number of, we call them chapters, but it's just days. Jesus has been spending just days as he's getting ready for this last week. And he knows a cross is coming and the disciples have no idea. They're just going on like it's just a normal week. It's not a normal week. This week for Jesus is going to end on Friday. I mean, on Sunday, okay, it's not going to end, but there's going to be an interruption. And they're not ready for an interruption at all. They're just thinking they're going through their week, 
praying to God, asking him to do things, because it's a normal week. It's not a normal week, and Jesus will stop them at times and say, listen, let me explain to you what is happening, and they couldn't get it through their heads. I don't understand, Jesus. You keep saying that these terrible things are going to happen to you, to the Messiah, but it doesn't fit in our categories of good, and we've thought this through, and we had a conversation about it. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem loving. It doesn't seem appropriate, and I think God can look at us at every one of those moments and say, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're feeling, and there's more. I mean, if we just stop for a moment, and to reflect on the bigness of God. There's just more. And so us at our best needs to say, Jesus, what am I missing here? By the way, I think that's what prayer is. Prayer is not, one of the reasons why I think this text causes problems for us is we think of, of, of prayer as a moment Yeah, we prayed earlier today. We gathered as a staff and as the worship team and we prayed. But I think prayer, when you look at it biblically, is is more of like this ongoing conversation. It's not just a moment in which I'm speaking to the Lord, but it literally is a conversation with the Lord. That it's not just a request to God. How many of you have given a request to God and then 20 minutes later find yourself talking to him again? And, and rethinking what you've said and trying to have that fit into what maybe you're, right? Is that not prayer? So even when we look at this, what Jesus says, so often when we look at what Jesus is saying and the power, power of these statements, it's almost like my request, period. I filled it out, and we do. We take very seriously the prayer requests in the, in the pew in front of you, and we pray for them. But if we're honest, if it's, a, if it's a request of substance, it's an ongoing conversation, is it not? An, onverca- an ongoing conversation in which I am repeatedly going to God and asking God and rethinking what I asked him and asking him why and, and asking him again and then asking him again and then remembering the entire time. It's not that he is reluctant. It's that there's something else that is happening that I don't fully understand or appreciate. That's why I think maybe there's two really amazing statements in this text. The first one, Jesus actually says, before he gets to the one where he says, hey, I'll I'll answer your request in prayer. He says this, you, speaking to the disciples, and I believe to those who come after the disciples, you're going to do greater works than I do. What? (laughs) No, 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 Jesus, I don't know how to do that. What's the greatest thing that Jesus did? We talked about this a few weeks ago. What's the greatest thing that Jesus did? Most of us kind of think, well, I don't know. Raising the dead has got to be up there. It is for me. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, I mean, there may have been others. Like, that's got to be to breathe life or to speak life into that which is no longer alive has got to be the greatest thing ever. Jesus at best, and we know this, that the disciples, a few of them, did this. A woman was raised in the book of Acts. It looks like another man who fell out a window and died was raised again. And so we know that this happens, but at best, it's a tie, right? Peter tied Jesus. Peter didn't beat Jesus, but Jesus actually says, 
there are greater things. You will do greater things than I will do. And the church has wrestled with this for 2,000 years. What did Jesus mean by that? What did, for a long time, people believed, well, the word greater, maybe what he's talking about here is that collectively, we will do more. Maybe that's what Jesus is describing, that collectively, all the things that we will do is more than what he will do. Eh. Problem is, is that the word greater here is more qualitative than quantitative. So it doesn't look like that's what Jesus is implying. So why would Jesus say that we will do greater things? I think what is really beautiful about this is it helps us see that the failure in our logic or the failure in our love or the failure in our thinking, the failure in our idea making is that um, there is a, a way of evaluating things that when God is involved in doing it, he just looks at it he values it differently than we do. What's the greatest thing that could ever happen? That we would never die. That's why Lazarus means so much to us. That's why Jairus' daughter means so much to us. If we could have that, if we could have like life that would go on forever, what's better than that? Jesus in Matthew 11. Turn to Matthew 11, because I think this is a verse that you need to underline. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is having a conversation. John the Baptist is in prison. So John is Jesus' cousin. John is the one who is preparing the way for Jesus. And John finds himself in a circumstance that his parents never planned for. Parents didn't send him to college so that he would end up in prison. Right? Parents didn't just always hope, one day I hope our son just goes to prison. No, you don't want that. John didn't want that. And John is making much of Jesus by saying who he is. This is the Lamb of God. This is the, the one that was promised. Make, make straight the way of the Lord. Repent. Like That is John's message that he is giving, and it gets him in trouble. And I'm sure he's going, this doesn't seem to make sense. I was sent to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and now I'm in prison? That makes no sense to me. I thought this was like God's redemption of Israel. I thought this was God restoring Israel. How did I get in prison? And that's where God's ways are better, or at least different, than ours. The path to him, or the path to life, it just is, it's different than I ever would have expected. So John says to Jesus, sends uh, like, people to go see Jesus. Are you really the one? And Jesus basically says, yeah, I'm the one. Like, yep, you're in prison and you're not even getting out of prison. Your life is about to end. And I know you don't understand how all this works, but yes, I'm the one. You need to know that. I'm the one. And then he turns to the crowd and he says this. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist has appeared. No one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Now that's kind of an amazing statement because there's been a lot of great people before John the Baptist. We love top tens, don't we? We love top tens, top threes, who's the best, who's the we, and we have those conversations ad nauseum. And what's interesting is, is that when we bring God into the equation, when we bring how God sees things, it's always different. The disciples, who's the greatest? And Jesus, the, the one who's doing the least. What? The one who's the least? That's the greatest? I don't think you understand greatest, Jesus. 
You will do greater works than what I do. And by the way, the greatest, not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Elijah, Elisha, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Daniel, not Job, John. What did John do? As far as we know, no miracles. John just walked around, dressed really strange, ate bizarro food, and all he did, all he did, that's Jesus. Over there, that's Jesus. He's the Messiah. That, over there, that's him. He's the Messiah. That's all he did, all the time. He's the greatest. Now, if that's hard to get your head around, look how the verse ends. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Think about of all of what Moses did, all of what Abraham did, all of what David did, you know, all our top tens, none of them compared to John the Baptist. Because for God, greatness begins and ends in him. And, and by his plan and sovereignty, it's not that God, I don't think, loved John more than Abraham or more than Moses. No, we each have a part to play and we have to trust that God has given us a part to play and that he is working out all of these things for his glory and for others' benefit and for our joy if we can stomach it sometimes. And God has a plan and a purpose and John's purpose was to just sit there and point to Jesus. And that's more than leading people out, leading people out of Egypt. That's more than calling down fire from heaven. That's more than raiding, raising a widow's son. That's more than writing an amazing book or, or, or dealing with a, a lion's den. It's, more, it's greater than all of those things to just think about it. The greatest thing that anybody had ever done up until the time of John was to just look at Jesus and say, he is the Messiah. It's the greatest act in human history. We could have never figured that out. We would have never known that, except God told us that that is the case. And what is it, the end of the verse says? And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know if the least was in first service or second service, okay? But let's assume it's in first service because we're all better than first service people. We know it, right? Some of us because we went to Sunday school first service and the rest of us because we were sleeping where we should be early on a Sunday morning. But here we are right now, right? So there was somebody in first service and that somebody in first service is the least in the kingdom of heaven. The least in the, all of God's kingdom for the last 2,000 years and they were in first service and yet that person can stand up and say, but I'm better than John the Baptist. Does that make any sense to you? That you somehow are greater than John the Baptist. Can you explain that to me? That doesn't make sense unless. John's greatest statement is what? That's the Messiah. John, can you explain to me about how the Lamb of God is going to fix all of this? John would have to say, I have no idea. I mean, I know that he is, but I have no idea how. And he dies not fully understanding the plan of God. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven, and I hope that's you. I hope it's you. The least in the kingdom of heaven, I'll take that spot. The least in the kingdom of heaven can say, hey, John, <laughs> hold my honey. 
Um, Jesus saved the world by going to the cross. And I, I, can tell, I can tell the whole story of God in what he did in Jesus. Now, the, the problem is, is that for some of us, that's not as big of a deal as it should be because it's a really big deal. A young lady in first service gave her life to Jesus Christ. And she could only do that because she knows God's plan of salvation. Not just that Jesus is somehow the Lamb of God, but that Jesus was sent by God to die in our place for our sins. And that Jesus was then raised on the third day to give proof that she has been not only loved by God, but forgiven by God. And, and now her life is now folded into God's plan and God's purpose. She understands it fully. Moses never got it. Abraham never got it. Elijah never understood understood it. Isaiah only dreamed about it. John the Baptist got really, really close, and yet the, still there was this, this veil that needed to be torn in two. But you get it. At least I hope you have it. That's how Jesus understands greatness. And until we get that, until we become like a child until we fold ourselves in and under the plan and the purposes of God, we will never fully understand the power of these three small verses. You'll do greater things than me. It's not, it's not because I'm greater than Jesus. It's because I now know the full story and he even says, because I'm going to the Father, it is the coming of the Holy Spirit that now empowers us, that empowers you, that empowers me to be God's ambassador to fulfill the commission that Jesus has given to tell the fullness of God's love and God's grace to the world. And that's what God desires. He desires the world to know how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, how much he will not let go of us, how much he is willing to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all of our brokenness. And you and I have the privilege of doing that. That's what Jesus means by you'll do greater works. But you and I, for some reason... It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's a struggle that everyone's going to have, but we settle for lesser things. Take a look. So John, we were in Matthew 11. Now, now, now go forward a little bit to John chapter 6. We keep coming back to this, the Sermon on the Bread of Life. In John chapter 6, Jesus lets us know our problem. In John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says it this way. He has just fed the 5,000. By the way, that would be up there on like amazing miracles, like just great things that Jesus did, was he fed 5,000 people. And then Jesus says to them, and it's like he's speaking to us today, truly I tell you, you're looking for me. This is after the, he had fed them. They, they went after him to make him king. They were so excited. He says, truly you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, not because you figured out who I am, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Like you want more bread. You want more fish. And that's what you see me as. I'm your bread guy. Like I'm your fish guy now. That's who I am. 
You don't see me for who I really am. There's no cross in your eyes that you see that I've got to go to. I'm your bread guy. And Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Look at who Jesus is and realize, are you ready for this? That Jesus is greater than anything he could do for us. Jesus himself is greater than anything he could ever do for us. I'm not asking you to um, ignore everything that he has done for us. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. But until you and I, much like these people chasing after Jesus looking for bread, until you and I can see him for who he is and appreciate him for who he is, these words of scripture, greater works than these, and we're always wanting greater. How many resurrections can we have? How many people can we feed? And Jesus says, no, the greatest work you could do is tell somebody about me. This is you and I. Oh, that's what you want us to do. Just tell people about you. Seriously? I mean, let me ask you a question. If I said, hey, we're going to be doing some amazing stuff, how many of you want to raise the dead? How many of you want to go feed thousands of people and take care of that? How many of you want to do it? You, I, we would sign up like that was the greatest thing ever. Who wants to go tell people about Jesus and God's love? Can I wear a t-shirt? It's so awkward. I mean, you know, I mean, can I, I'd rather hand out sandwiches. Yeah, honestly, me too sometimes. Isn't that interesting? That what Jesus says is the greatest, you and I don't think it's the greatest. I mean, I think we know we should think it's the greatest, but I don't know if we think it's the greatest. It's a little bit like when someone says, hey, by the way, um, would love for you to do something for me, and you know they need money because they're going on a mission trip. And then they say, but the most important thing you can do for me is pray. And you're like, oh, good, because I thought you were going to ask for money. Right? Like, this is how God works. Which, by the way, the title for the sermon is How Prayer Works. But I'll say it again. Prayer doesn't work. God works. And prayer is a conversation, an ongoing conversation where God and I or God and you or God and us are having a conversation where the will of God and the purposes of God, the reality of God is becoming greater and my reality is getting smaller. It's kind of like John said, that is the Lamb of God and I must decrease and he must increase. I'll go to prison. I'll I'll lose my head, literally, I'll give up everything if just Jesus can be known in me. This is the way that people like John or people like Paul or people like Peter, James and John on their good days, they understood that the greatest thing was not the things that they were doing, but the one that they were doing it for. That's John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus is greater than anything he could ever do for us. And so we come to that part of the text where it says, and whatever you ask, and this is where we get excited, whatever we ask, sweet. It's like Aladdin all over again, right? And again, 
what, what I love is, is that we have to hold the teachings of this text along with all the other teachings of Scripture. And if we just start with this, to be a follower of God, to be a follower of Jesus, means that we recognize who God is, who we are, the amazing difference between the two. We then surrender all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all of our plans for him. And we say, God, it's whatever you want. It's not what I want, for I'm a, a very broken person, and I'm coming, you for, coming to you for meaning and purpose. I'm coming to you to reorder my life. I'm coming to you to make sense of my world, the broken world that I live in, and I know that you have a plan and a purpose that is so much greater. God, whatever you want, I'm here. Is that what you did when you gave your life to Christ? No, most of us are looking for bread and fish. So that we can keep on going, right? Like how many of you, when you came to Christ, said, it's all about him now, it's not about me. You know to say that, but do you know to mean that? It has been so hard for me to let go of my ideas and my loves and my compassion, my logic. It is so hard for me to let go of my sacrifices, which seem to be so worthy Like, God, I've thought this through and I've worked hard and I've done everything that you asked. Why isn't my life working the way that I want? Oh, it's still your life, isn't it? And I've looked at Jesus many times and said, yes, it is my life. Jesus doesn't say, whatever you ask. Look at verse 13. Jesus actually says, Whatever you ask in my name. Nope. Some of us go, oh, there it is, the fine print. I knew he didn't mean it. If we're honest, all that betrays in us is that we still don't believe that God is better than these things. Or we still want, if we're going to be honest, we still want other things more than him. When you hear that and you think, oh, that's the fine print, that's why God's not going to do what I told him to do. Because it's really, it's, just, it's only if I do it in his name. This is how we literally talk. Our tone changes. Oh, you mean I got to do it in his name? No, I thought you wanted to do it in his name. <laughs> like, I thought that's why you gave your life to Christ. I thought that's why you died and you no longer live, but Christ now lives in you. No. I, I kind of want Jesus to help my marriage and to help my kids and my business. And I'm willing to give. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to go to church occasionally if we don't have other things planned. Like I'm willing to and I'm willing to it, but it really is my life. And Jesus is saying to these disciples, listen, my life is not my life. My life has been sent for you. My life is at the will of the Father. My life has been spent for you. And when you engage me, When you want to follow me, your life will fall in and fold in under God's plan and God's purpose. And then the greatest things you do will be greater than what I do because you will tell the end of the story. And whenever you ask in my name, whatever you ask, another way to look at that phrase, in my name, is for my sake. And in reality, if I were to ask God something And then at the end of every request I had, for your sake, Jesus. Now all of a sudden we've got to ask, am I really saying that for the sake of Jesus? Is that what I really want? 
Do I really care about the sake of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the plan of God, and the purpose of God? And Jesus actually says, if you do this, whatever you ask for, it will come to be. Nowhere does Jesus promise us that we can with an abracadabra, with some kind of rubbing of the lamp. And, and by the way, many of us, I think when we're doing it in prayer, uh, uh, try to like clean up our lives that if we're, if, if, we're, if we're better, if we're more holy, if we're more righteous, then maybe God will answer it, right? And so there's lots of different ways that we play around with God to try to get him to answer the prayers the way that we want when what God is really desiring is for us to find our greatest joy in him and to take our lives and to fold it into his and his purpose into his. That is why when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done. This isn't new. This isn't Jesus just making an addendum, some kind of a footnote at the end. No, this is how Jesus has always prayed. Your will be done. That is how we, as followers of Jesus, pray. Your will be done. That's how Jesus was able to, in the most desperate moment of his life, cry out to God, take this pain, this cup, this death from me. You can be completely real and honest with God. God, this is what I desire. This is what I want, and I'm begging you, and I'm not begging you because you're reluctant. I'm begging you because that's the good position of somebody who is surrendering everything to you. But God, before I say amen, it is not about me. And you're teaching me that it's not about me. And you're teaching me that there's a plan and a purpose that is greater than me. Not my will, but yours be done. That is not a resignation of fine. It is a resignation of whatever you want is right. And Jesus says when we pray like that, everything will be answered. Because God's will is going to be done. Jesus is greater than anything he could ever do for us. The mission of God is greater than anything he could ever do for us. Because the mission of God is Jesus for us. It is God himself for us, a demonstration of his love, a demonstration of his forgiveness, a demonstration of his mercy, a demonstration of his mercy for all. I think the reason why we struggle so much is because we so are limited to looking at life as just this life. And, and we're not, honestly, we're not very interested in the next one. And I think we need to rethink that. Because God is not just for this life. We might be, but God is not just for this life. Jesus is not just for this life. And by the way, that doesn't mean this life doesn't matter. It just means that this life is part of God's greater plan and God's greater purpose. And until I'm able to surrender to that and say, God, there are things that I can't understand, my best thoughts, my greatest loves, still fold into and under your divine sovereign grace. Teach me to understand. Teach me to accept and that is why I'm not saying you gotta quit praying those things. No, 
The Bible actually teaches us that we can ask God the most bizarre and crazy things. And as we take those things to him and we say in the name of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus and for your ultimate purposes, and then in that conversation, our lives get reordered, our wants get prioritized. And I think in the end, the more that we pray and the more that we engage and the more that we struggle and the more that we weep and the more that we cry and the more that we beg, the more that we grow and become like the one who is more valuable and more important than anything that he could do for us. So let me say it again. Our best ideas Our deepest love and compassion, our most logical conclusions, and our greatest sacrificial service, and even our prayers, and even our prayers, must surrender to the sovereign grace of God. Then and only then can we have his purposes and his interest, and can we find ourselves truly enjoying God for who he is, Jesus for what he has accomplished, and his plan for us. In our time of reflection, before we go around the table, I would like to ask you this. What is it that you desire? I mean, I would encourage you, don't hesitate. The Lord knows what you want. Don't try to pretend you want something more noble than you really do. No, take it to him. Have him explain to you and teach you and lead you by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the ongoing revelation of his word in the context of community. Work out the difficult struggles. Jesus, why didn't you? And God, why won't you? Take it to him. Ask him, God, in your name, I don't understand why. For your name's sake, I can't figure out why. And and then trust him in the end. Your will, not my will be done. You know, my concern about sermons that only are containing three verses is that usually means there's going to be a lot of questions that you could ask that I just don't have the time to answer. And I, I want to say to each and every one of you that if, if there's something that you're really wrestling with, an unanswered prayer, an ache that will not go away, a pain that just will not stop, confusion. I want you to know that there are a number of people, and I won't say that we have an answer, but we will do our best to point to Jesus and to pray with you. So don't just let this hang over you this morning. Reflect now before we gather around the table and just, God, what is it that I want? And how can I see you as better? And God, how can you help me understand how this, this thing that I desire so much could fit into your plan? Take that to him now.
God's plan and purpose involved a cross for his son, for our benefit. God did not spare his own son. That's God's plan and purpose for you. Forgiveness for us. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave his disciples a peace, knowing that this literally was a symbol of his own body that would be crucified days later. Take it and let us eat. And a cup was passed. For the redemption of our souls, let us drink. So now as the people of God, we come into his presence wanting to believe that he is worth it and that he is good and believing that sometimes. But I pray that this morning that as we sing these songs about his love for us and his desire to to be known in our lives and through our lives, I pray that in these moments of prayer and song that we can give him fully the praise and the honor and the glory that he deserves. Amen? Let's stand and sing, church.